X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I am Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, October 5th. A good day to subscribe to The Local, a good day to share it with friends. Pick three friends, send it to them, say, hey, did you know there's a podcast every morning with the Oregon News Rundown? Did you know it exists? I bet you didn't know. Now you know. You should totally listen. Today, back in the day, October 5th, 1789, the Women's March on Versailles took place in one of the earliest and most significant events of the French Revolution. The March, also known as the October March, or the October Days, or simply the March on Versailles, began among women in the marketplaces of Paris who, on the morning of October 5th, 1789, were near rioting over the high price and scarcity of bread. The demonstrations quickly intertwined with the actions of the revolutionaries who were seeking liberal political reforms and a constitutional monarchy for France instead of just a monarchy. The women, along with various allies, grew to a crowd of thousands. They ransacked the city armory for weapons, marched to the palace, and then besieged that palace. In a dramatic and violent confrontation, they successfully pressed their demands upon King Louis XVI. The event symbolized a new balance of power. It displaced somewhat the ancient privileged order of French nobility, favored the nation's common people, collectively termed the Third Estate. And here we are upset about some marches downtown. And yesterday, back in the day, October 4th, 1890, Alan Hart was born Alberta Lucille Hart in Hall Summit, Kansas. An Oregon physician, researcher, and writer, Hart was one of the first female-to-male transsexuals to undergo a hysterectomy in the United States and live the remainder of his life as a man. Today we will have your Quick 6 news headlines and an interview with Brooke Jackson-Glidden, editor of Eater PDX. Brooke brings us updates on the restaurant scene in Portland. X-Ray. And first up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. A police officer ran over a protester with his motorcycle on Friday night. Protesters gathered at Laurelhurst Park and marched to the Penumbra Kelly building on Friday night. Around 9 p.m., police began issuing warnings to protesters and journalists for trespassing. The demonstrators moved back to the streets for several hours, and sometime around midnight, a traffic officer approached a car on East Burnside and 47th. A crowd formed around the officer in the car. Videos posted to social media show the car getting away and the crowd surrounding the officer so the officer couldn't chase after the car. Videos then showed the officer driving his motorcycle into the crowd, hitting at least one person, dragging her maybe 20 feet, before running her over. Police maintained the woman jumped in front of the motorcycle after it had slowly pulled forward. Four people were arrested that night, including the woman who got in the altercation with a motorcycle. Protests in Portland have remained tense since Portland police were federally deputized in September. 78 Portland police officers and sheriff's deputies will likely remain federalized throughout the year. They were deputized the end of last month in anticipation of a Proud Boys rally. The Proud Boys rally didn't end up being very big, but the federalization continues. What does it mean? Anyone arrested at a protest could face federal charges. Even after Mike Schmidt, the Multnomah County DA, said he wouldn't pursue charges against protesters for lesser claims. Another potential impact is that it could allow officers to arrest people for federal crimes that might not be considered crimes in Oregon, like marijuana possession. To be clear, no marijuana possession arrests have happened or been threatened. Ted Wheeler, Portland's current mayor, did call on U.S. Attorney Bill Williams to reverse that deputized status. But last week, Williams said, nope, not going to do that. And meanwhile, critics are concerned about the constitutionality of this move and fear it might embolden more police violence. Your daily dose of coronavirus data. Sunday saw 260 new confirmed cases in Oregon, one new death. State death toll now at 572. Case count 34,770. The current president of the United States and multiple of his confederates are not included within those numbers. They're not Oregonians. 
Meanwhile, a Umatilla County hospital stopped tracking COVID-19 and health workers aren't pleased. In June, hospital staff at Good Shepherd Healthcare System were informed that the hospital would reduce tracking and would be reducing communication about possible exposure. The hospital suffered two outbreaks, caused at least 48 people to get sick. According to the Good Shepherd management, the new policies were in line with state health regulations that don't require internal contact tracing. State health officials defend the lax regulation as coming straight from the CDC, the federal government. Remember, I just mentioned that guy, the current president of the United States. The president of this country is actually the head of the executive branch. That includes the CDC. Most hospitals have ignored the advice not to track internally, instead keeping workers informed of potential outbreaks. But some hospitals have kept the information from healthcare workers, and healthcare workers make up about 10% of Oregon's coronavirus cases, over 3,300 in total. Nurses at Good Shepherd are now involved in union negotiations with management. One thing they're asking for? Notification within eight hours of COVID exposure. Good Shepherd CEO Dennis Burke says that's a non-starter. Pacific Power might indeed be facing liabilities if the downed power lines are found to be the source of this season's fires. Some eyewitnesses say that power lines downed by a three-day windstorm started several of the massive fires. On Friday, Oregon's U.S. Senator sent a letter to the chief of the U.S. Forest Service and the Oregon State Forester asking for an investigation in the role that the power lines might have played in those fires. The power lines that ran through several fire centers, they're owned by Portland-based Pacific Power. People who were affected by the fires say the line should have been turned off during the windstorm and the resulting fire advisory. If Pacific Power is found liable for those damages, they might have to pay up to a billion dollars. Last year in California, PG&E, not to be confused with PGE here, declared bankruptcy after being forced to pay out $30 billion in liabilities related to fires. One lawsuit has already been filed against Pacific Power's parent company, Pacificort, and more might be in the works. The Sandy Am fire was caused by downed power line that fell on a cyclone fence. Pacific Power refused to say whether or not it was their power line, but the owner of the school that the fence surrounded said their power was provided by Pacific Power. Other fires at Archie Creek, Slater, and Echo Mountain are also under investigation and thought to have been started by downed Pacific Power Lines. There is a U.S. Senate race in Oregon right now. Democrat Jeff Merkley is running against Joe Ray Perkins, the Republican and QAnon supporter. One of the many things on the November ballot is one of Oregon's two U.S. Senate seats. Why two? Every state gets two. Even if you're a tiny little state, you get the same number of Senate seats as a giant big state. We'll talk about that another day. Democrat Jeff Merkley, running for re-election, has been in office since 2009. His opponent, Joe Ray Perkins, ran for the U.S. Senate in 2014, didn't win, and for the U.S. House in 2016 and 2018, didn't win those. This year, she did win the Republican primary. Perkins might be especially noteworthy for her open support of the QAnon conspiracy theory. The basics of the theory state that President Trump is fighting an evil cabal of elite sex traffickers. This is the thing that led a guy to shooting up a pizza parlor because he thought Hillary Clinton had a bunch of sex traffic minors hidden in a basement. We call that Pizzagate. Perkins and Merkley differ on other issues, including COVID-19. Perkins has underplayed its seriousness, while Merkley has said he believes more than the reported number of people have died from the illness. One issue they do agree on? Forest management prevent wildfires. There are some differences. Merkley believes in prescribed burns and forest mowing to increase resiliency. Perkins says we just should log the wood. Here's the quote, the cost to fight those fires is way more than what it should be because we should be able to log a lot of that wood. Oregon's Department of Corrections might be cutting ties with community colleges to save money. The state's DOC is considering moving all educational services to an in-house program to cut costs. Currently, six community colleges are partnered with the Department of Corrections to provide GED testing for adults in custody in 14 facilities. 
According to Jennifer Black, the Department of Corrections Communications Manager, here's the quote, DOC is proposing that these contracts be phased out. The agency hire back those positions as part of the DOC permanent budget going forward. Nearly 1,000 adults in custody were enrolled in adult basic skills programs in Oregon as of September. Black stated the pandemic had made contracting these services especially difficult as outside educators weren't allowed to teach the classes in person. The DOC has a budget shortfall of about $110 million, has already enacted $25 million worth of layoffs and other cost cutting. Education contracts cost the DOC $16 million every two years, and due to funding issues, they're between $3 and $4 million short. The OEA, Oregon Education Association Teachers Union, is hoping that DOC will consider. They're concerned that without well-trained educators, those enrolled in the program won't receive a substantial education. From 2003 to 2006, the Oregon State Penitentiary tried in-house adult basic skills services and saw successful completion rates drop by about 50%. The DOC says regardless of the specific contract, it will continue to provide vocational training through community colleges as well as college courses funded through Pell Grants or self-pay. And after years and years and years and years of talking about this topic, Wapato Jail has in fact been converted to a homeless shelter and it's opening its doors. Wapato Jail was built almost 20 years ago. wasn't open due to lack of funds. It's been talked about in election after election, newspaper story, newspaper story, and later this month, it will open as the Bybee Lakes Hope Center, a homeless shelter with 84 beds to start. They're planning to expand it to 225 beds, as well as programs that would help residents with mental illness and addiction recovery. Real estate developer Jordan Schnitzer bought the building and began the project to convert the prison back in 2018, but had not found a homeless service provider before last winter. Alan Evans and Helping Hands Outreach Reentry Center stepped in when no other provider could pay for the space and the city refused to. Evans was able to secure $5 million in private funding and says the annual operating budget will be $1.2 million. The project faced a bunch of obstacles, including needing to get permission from the city to use the former jail as a permanent shelter. But a bill passed at one of the special legislative sessions this summer stating that cities had to approve shelters as long as they met certain requirements. Meanwhile, as we'd like to say, TriMet has agreed to send a special bus to the shelter, and that's important because the shelter's 12 miles from downtown. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. And now we have an interview with Brooke Jackson Glidden, editor of Eater PDX, who will be sharing news about the restaurant scene in Portland. Ghost kitchens, tipping in the pandemic, and finding hope. Here's Brooke Jackson Glidden speaking with me, Emily Gilliland. Thank you for joining us, Brooke. Good morning. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's let's start with talking about Pock Pock. So this is a cherished darling of the Portland food scene. Thai restaurant has taken the pandemic very seriously, especially after Floyd Cardoz, a chef and close friend of the owner, passed from coronavirus. Pock Pock announced they would be closing most of their restaurants permanently, but the flagship location will remain closed only for the duration of the pandemic. Is Pock Pock in a position of privilege to be able to continue to lease their space without any revenue? Well, sure. I think <laughs> that, you know, that ends up being the case for um, a number of businesses right now. But I do think that um, Pock Pock's stature um, as a national name um, gives it, you know, a certain level of privilege. And, you know, you have to factor in, um, you know, He's a white male business owner who has owned several restaurants in his career. Um, there just happens to be systemic privilege that's associated with that. Mm-hmm. So I do think that he's in a particularly um, privileged position, though, yet again, he did 
closed a, a huge percentage of his restaurants. So, you know, it's it's tough on everyone. Yeah. Now, Pock Pock Wings are going to be delivering through ghost kitchens. What the heck is a ghost kitchen? Right. So, you know, this started to happen. It started to pop up in places like San Francisco a little bit earlier than it did here. Um, these are basically delivery only commissaries with a number of different, like, quote unquote, restaurants within them. So, you know, you might be on your delivery apps like, you know, Caviar, and you'll see a number of different restaurants that you can't really like identify you can't locate them they're probably within this one specific commissary usually like a food truck um that is doing a number of different things within that single space um so reef kitchens is is the big name they have um kitchens around the portland area and and around the country um and they have housed a number of different brands um people may remember them earlier this year for their you know short-lived fuku launch um associated with momofuku brand david chang um, but right now there's been a lot of local interest from local chefs, which has been interesting to see. Hmm. Any idea what the work conditions are like in these ghost kitchens? Well, you know, I think you could compare them pretty similarly to a food cart. Okay. You know, it's, it's small. Um, people are working in, in these sort of small kitchen spaces. I think that things were probably much worse uh, during fire conditions because it's mm-hmm. so hard to escape the smoke. Um, but, you know, I would say that they feel pretty similar to a food cart in many cases. Okay. And are they held to a different standard because they aren't visible to the public? I think that they probably can get away with a little bit more than other places. But Mm -hmm. I I will say that, um, you know, you might spot a Reef Kitchen's truck, you know, in food cart pods. I, I believe there's one in Cartlandia. So, you know, they are not quite under the same sort of... Um, you know, it's not like they're hidden in sort of different corners um, behind closed doors. But I do think that um, they get that sort of benefit of, of not having that, you know, customer uh, human interface. Got it. And, and any differences in pay to be working in these kitchens versus a, 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 um, a consumer facing restaurant? Interestingly, I've heard that uh, Reef employees are paid decently well. Um, the exception, of course, would be uh, tips, right? You're okay. not seeing the same sort of tips that you would see in any sort of business um, face-to-face with other customers um, because it doesn't have that human interface and, and t- you know, tips that you would see on um, a, delivery, a delivery app that go to the driver, not um, the person making the food or the person serving the food. So, um, you know, that is sort of the main difference, I would say, um, compared to, say, a food truck. Got it. Now, you all have been doing some research about tipping during the coronavirus. Statistics gathered in the Eater PDX poll shows that 71% of us say they that we're starting to tip more for both takeout and on-site service. Uh, what's, what's driving the change? Well, I do think that people are uniquely aware of how much of a risk there is um, in service right now. You know, servers are putting their lives at risk when they are interacting with customers. Um, you know, we, they, you know, there are some restaurants, say uh, Gato Gato, that have these stations that are six feet away. So there's never a point in time when a server is actually within six feet of a customer. But generally, a lot of servers are getting close to a number of different people. Um, and that does put them in a, a, a unique position. Um, 
So people who are dining in, they want to pay more than they usually have been when they have that kind of experience. And a lot of people have just communicated that they are appreciative of the opportunity to dine out again once they didn't have that opportunity for several months. Yeah. So the smoke over the last couple of weeks uh, gave us a glimpse into what the winter might look like to some extent, because we've been we've been eating at restaurants more on the you know patios outside seating. When the rain starts, that's going to be that's going to be changing. Any um, insights into how restaurants are thinking about um, continuing to adapt for the winter season? You know, I've talked to a lot of different restaurant owners, workers in my like day to day. Most of them are pretty freaked out. Um, yeah. There are quite a few that are sort of starting to think really um, actively about the ways that they are going to make their patios more winter friendly, you know, either building overhangs or covers. Um, you know, I have one particular restaurant I can think of that is doing single use blankets. So people have those um, heaters, fire pits. Um, some people are considering opening their indoor dining rooms, but they feel really hesitant about it or don't necessarily want to do that. It's a last resort to just be able to stay open. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, I think we're going to see, regardless, another upsurge in takeout and delivery over on-site dining. Mm. And some recent news just this week, Top Chef is looking at Portland for their next season. What do we know about this? Yes. So it is now confirmed. There were rumors sort of circulating for a while, but Top Chef will host its season 18 in um, Portland, which is very exciting. Um, they There's going to be a certain level of um, exploration of the larger Oregon sort of Portland area. There's going to be Willamette Valley scenes. There's going to be stuff that happens in the Hood River Foot Fruit Loop, the uh, Columbia River Gorge and Tillamook. Um, but it is supposed to take place generally in Portland, in um, Oregon in general. What might that do for the restaurant industry here in our community and and even within the region? Well, you know, it it always sort of um, brings attention. You know, anyone who is on Top Chef or any time that a city is sort of centered in Top Chef, people learn more about those restaurant communities. Mm. So there is a definite possibility that it might bring a little bit more attention to this region. We have waited a long time to have a a Top Chef season. Um, So, you know, this is definitely exciting. Um, And there will be some, I will say that Gregory Gourdet is a confirmed guest judge. So, you know, Ah. there will be some Portland presence specifically on the show this season as well. Um, But generally, I think it's going to celebrate the region as, as a whole. Um, we don't know much about uh, contestants yet, as far as I know. So, um, you know, there's still more to learn. That's exciting. Now, speaking of Gregory Gourdet, um, he had talked about opening a new restaurant. Is is there any new information about that? Yes. Yeah, so um, nothing huge. It is going to be called Con. I don't know if we've talked about that okay. uh, since that um, went live. But, yes, um, he has a name for it. Um, he held a pop-up um, earlier this summer that sort of went through a few of the dishes that he's thinking about for that space. Um, you know, okay. things like frozen melon soups with crab and, you know, oxtails and all of these things that would be really an interesting add to the dining scene at large. Stuff that is lo- underrepresented, I would say, in Portland's culinary scene. So mm-hmm. definitely exciting. Okay, that's exciting. Yeah, for sure. And we're talking about Chef Gregory Gourdet, who's been on Top Chef. He serves as the Director of Culinary Operations 
over at Departure in the Nines, also starting a new restaurant and will be a guest judge, as Brooke just said, on the new season of Top Chef that will be based here. Brooke, I know we talk a lot about a, real, a lot of really hard information and news with the restaurant scene, but what's bringing you hope right now? Hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I say this a lot, but I will say that the food industry in Portland this year has shown such an interest in mutual aid and mm-hmm. feeding people who are unable to afford their food generally. Um, people are, you know, I think of Vitaly Paley and, and other chefs that I've seen working for Feed the Mass, Jacob Valentine's um, amazing um, mutual aid kitchen uh, that feeds people, you know, both fire, you know, fire evacuees and, and un- unhoused people throughout the Portland area. Um, I think of so many people who are doing free food giveaways. Um, I keyed another one of those uh, at Keys Loaded Kitchen um, on the same day as the Proud Boy Rally, and it got great numbers. Um, you know, there are, I, I really, I, it, it is definitely inspiring to see people continue to, even in this incredibly difficult time, choose to feed people in need. Um, and I will say that um, there are restaurants that are opening still, which I find really exciting. You know, there are still people who want to get in this industry. And even though it is suffering so much right now, and, and that leads me to believe that uh, restaurants are here to stay in some form. Oh, that's great. Any new openings that you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, you know, there are some cool ones. Um, uh, there is a place that opened in Happy Valley that was once called um, L.A.'s Best Fish and Chips. They opened a food cart, basically, in that Happy Valley Station area, and they're doing these sort of uh, flavored batters. Mm. But the guy um, is a Dublin expat, and, you know, he makes a really good fish and chips, so I hear. I'm definitely checking it out as soon as I can. Excellent. Brooke, where can folks find out more information about Eater PDX? You know, really easy uh, URL. That's pdx.eater.com. Excellent. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. That's Brooke Jackson-Glidden, editor at Eater PDX. You can find more at pdx.eater.com. Thanks to Brooke for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a si- Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. Pick up, do that again, hopefully just once. Thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And remember, tell three fifths. And remember, tell three friends about this dope podcast that people should know about. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.